Welcome to Village Church of Gurney podcast. This week, we continue on in our series on mission in exile. Pastor David will be preaching from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 4, 11. And the name of the sermon is called His Victory, Your Hope. Let's join Pastor David now. You are at war, spiritually speaking. That the Christian life, the Christian journey, this walk of discipleship, and in many ways is very fitting to be described as a battle, a war, with real enemies, a real consequence, real victories and defeats. And in some ways, uh, perhaps you've come here today and you actually know that, you, you, you've, you either know that at least mentally or maybe you've been feeling that truth this last week. Uh, maybe there's a, a, a work setting or a work situation or a season in your career that's just brutally difficult for maybe a whole bunch of different reasons. Maybe there's a relationship that is, is strained in your family or extended family. Maybe there's a battle or a, a war you're waging against a sin or temptation. And the unique thing about the war that we as Christians face, in some ways, we have to learn to look through the situation to see the true enemy who's animating that battle, who's, who's enlivening that battle. That the battle you face in some ways is not against your spouse, it's not against your family members, it's not against your, your supervisor or coworkers, the difficult work situation that you're in. The battle that you face in some ways is not against uh, um, technology, that behind that battle lies the true battle, that the spiritual reality is the forces of darkness, Satan and his dominion, though ultimately so in the final analysis, will come to defeat. We praise God for that. Until that day, in some ways, that battle continues to rage. And as we are sent by Jesus uh, to, to navigate this earth in such a way that we are not just exiles getting out of this world, or not just exiles saying, Lord, just hide me under a turtle shell and just come now. Exiles that we are sent on mission for this very world that we are battling in and among. The spiritual war that rages. And though we are in a battle, we are not left without resources that Jesus provides us with, in some ways, very unique weapons, subversive weapons, weapons that you might not expect, weapons that as he hands them over, you might initially think, wait a second, these, this is it? This is what you're equipping me with for the battle? But the more we see, the more we realize just how helpful, just how useful the resources that God provides for the battle that lies before us. So would you meet me, First Peter, as we're navigating through this book, First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Let me read all the way, verses 8 to 17. Listen to what God's Word says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Do you catch the language of battle in there? Do you catch the language of, of either adversaries or enemies reviling or slandering you that in some ways it is important to know and to remember that we follow a Savior who faced adversaries. We follow a Savior who faced suffering. We follow a Savior who faced difficulty. That when you take a journey down this path of Christian discipleship, Jesus' journey is emulated in your life. You and I are not Jesus. But the path that we take is one that we are going on mission in a context where, where we are seeking to serve and care and be the light of Christ for others who are against us. Now remember, look through the enemy to the ultimate enemy. And as we are going on this mission, God gives us all these kinds of resources, these subversive weapons for our battle. Did you hear them all? Unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, not repaying evil for evil, keeping our tongue from evil, uh, responding to evil with good, being zealous for doing uh, good. Verse 14, that, that um, even if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, we'll be blessed, not having fear, uh, turning in blessing for wrongdoing. Having a good conscience uh, that um, those who revile your good behavior will be put to shame, even if we suffer, even for doing good. You might think, wait a second, but if I'm going to go to battle, if I'm going to go to, I, I need some brass knuckles. <laughs> I need something serious. I need something that could take down my enemy, but Jesus gives us a completely different set of resources. How are these helpful to us? Think about this. How can we respond in such a way that the vicious cycle of evil for evil, reviling for reviling, blow for blow, the only way that we can respond to truly undo that cycle is by subverting it. It's by taking the momentum out of the vicious cycle of evil. And we do that by doing things like responding to evil with character, responding to evil with good. How? How do we do that? When it is so tempting, when you take a blow, when shots are fired across the bow, as it were, spiritually speaking, you know, you felt the temptation. We just want to get back at our enemies. We just want to destroy them. But Jesus says, respond in a different way. Respond to a blow. Respond to slander with good character. How can we do that? And why can we do that? For a couple different reasons. On the one hand, we know, spiritually speaking, that we are broken ourselves that by default we are, are, are sinful ourselves, that when I look into the face of my enemy, I have to realize I'm looking into a mirror. That's me, that apart from Christ, I am an enemy of God. 
hating God and, and hating others. So when an enemy takes a blow at me, I know that I can respond with character. Why? Because I am a sinner saved by grace too. Or I am a sinner saved by grace and the same grace now I now want to extend to others who need that grace. I can respond to evil with good because I am sinful yet have been made righteous. And that's important to know. It's important to reflect on that fellow Christians, we have not somehow achieved our way to a righteous standing and are somehow better than others to our left and to our right or to our neighbors around us. No, no, no. We've been made righteous, transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That he has washed us. He has saved us. He has adopted us. It's, it's the gospel of grace. Because if I've done anything to achieve this standing of grace, then of course I could be self-righteous to those around me. Of course I could respond blow to blow. But if I am in utter need and I have been saved by utter grace, then even if my enemy, even if your enemies, a snarky comment in passing, shot fired over the social media bow, a little bit of an eye roll, marginalization because of your faith in Jesus Christ, scoffs, eye rolls, conversations that turn tense around a dinner table when faith comes up. In those moments, do you realize, Christian, that you do not need to take up fist and respond blow to blow, that you can respond to reviling with character. Why? Because you're offering the same grace that you needed to. I'm offering the same grace that I needed to. A grace that Jesus Christ gives to us. We can respond to blow with character. That's number one. Number two, I can pursue peace without overreaching for vengeance. Why? Because Jesus has made peace with me. And there's a temptation of the human heart. We see this in individuals. We see this throughout history, that the desire to make things right, if it's completely and only and utterly up to us, if there's no just sovereign God of the universe who will make all things right, what is staying my hand from overreaching what is right or just and overreaching and grabbing for vengeance? To not just make things right, but to utterly obliterate my enemy, utterly destroy them, to shame them, to mock them. That if they cause me to hurt, I want them to hurt doubly so. What's going to keep my hand from overreaching for that? Only a just God. The irony of that, that if he has made peace with me, I can make peace with others. And if he is ultimately overseeing all things, and all things will be made right, then I don't need to live my life anxious, wondering if all the wrongs around me will ultimately be accounted for. Now, between now and his second coming, he calls us to make peace, to make peace, truth and reconciliation, pursuing reconciliation with others, a clarity and honesty about what happened hurt me. I need you to know that, and I forgive you, and the path forward is one of reconciliation. And the only way that's going to keep my heart from overreaching and grabbing for vengeance is knowing that there is a just and holy and loving God who has first reconciled with me, who's first made peace with me. It creates in my heart an ability to respond to blow with character, to pursue peace, because Jesus has, been made, has made peace with me. It gives me the ability to defend my faith, not with the desire to roll over my enemy, but to win my enemy. Do you catch that later in this, uh, in this portion? Verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you 
for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. That as you're living the Christian life, it raises questions. The convictions that you have as a believer, the values that you have as, as a believer, um, are going to raise questions. Sometimes those questions are going to come from different angles. Sometimes it's not going to be a question. It's just going to be a scoff. <laughs> or it might be confusion. Or, or, or it might be people kind of wondering why you live the, the way that you live, why you spend your time the way you spend it, why your values are shaped the way they are. In some ways, that's an opportunity that First Peter gives us to make a defense, make an explanation for the hope that's within us. What's the driving hope? What's the central hope that animates your life, that guides and controls all that you do? How you think about marriage and career and time and money and, and your values and what's important, how you handle suffering, what you think about the end of life, what you think about the beginning of life, all that shapes in between, how you navigate a hardship and difficulty and suffering, how you live your life when the gospel is at the center of it, is going to raise questions with those around you. And the goal, Peter says, in those moments, is not to try to win an argument to outsmart your enemy, outsmart the person right in front of you, outsmart the person that's speaking to you, is to try to win them gentleness and respect, to make a defense, make a defense to explain the gospel, to even, to even respond to uh, accusations against the gospel or the Christian faith, to even correct wrong thinking about the biblical gospel and the Christian faith, but to do it in such a manner that we do it with gentleness and respect. And there might be unique seasons in your life or in history uh, where, where making a defense can help bring clarity to confusion when it comes to matters of the gospel one of the more compelling, or, or, or one of the compelling ingredients, I think, especially today, is not only what we say. We need to be clear about the gospel. We need to be clear about, about the Bible and Scripture. But all the more, especially today, it's how we say it. How we say it. What's unique, what's going to stick out, is the gentleness and respect. That as you're describing the gospel, people can tell, they, can, they know when the goal is to win an argument or the goal is to love and care and win someone's heart. That's what Jesus equips us with as we go on this journey, as we go on this path of Christian discipleship, responding to blow with character, pursuing peace because God has made peace with me, defending my faith to win my enemy because truth in love is what won me. We can't compromise on the truth. And we certainly can't share truth in an unloving way. With gentleness and respect, that's what won me. That's what wins others over to the faith, to the one who has saved me. And finally, suffering. Suffering. Knowing that in a way I'm not surprised by my suffering. I'm not derailed by suffering. I'm not derailed by difficulty because I know that I'm in a spiritual battle. I'm in a spiritual war. And if I follow a suffering Savior, it's not uncommon, it's no surprise that I will suffer along the way for my Christian faith. And that takes all sorts of forms throughout time and history, in different uh, cultures, in different uh, countries of the world, past, present, and future. Now, when you start to follow Jesus, there's going to be some new enemies on the radar, seeking to slow down your path, seeking to derail you from the path. 
seeking to work against the advancement of the Christian gospel. Simply knowing that takes the surprise out of spiritual warfare, doesn't it? It takes the surprise out of opposition for our faith. So that our suffering doesn't um, surprise us, and we can also know that our suffering is not without point. Our suffering is not aimless. That when you seek to live the Christian faith out, maybe it's in the context of where you're the only Christian in your family. Maybe it's in the context where... um, You've recently come to faith. And perhaps all of your friend networks are now going through this this strange kind of recalibration that some of your friends have completely abandoned you. Some of your friends are intrigued about this new faith that you're grappling with and wrestling with. Uh, Maybe it's in in the form of, of just overt opposition. As you suffer for the faith, as you face hardship, Because of the gospel who has a hold of you, know that your suffering is not wasted. Why? Because God sees. He sees. He walks with you. He goes with you. There's empathy and sympathy there. And ultimately, Jesus will do away with suffering in the final analysis. That means it has an expiration date. (laughs) That there is hope in the final analysis. Do you see how these weapons uniquely subvert, subvert? the forces of darkness, and the evil in front of us, that when you respond blow for blow, reviling for reviling, slander for slander, gossip for gossip, hate for hate, evil for evil, that's nothing new. The world has seen that from the very beginning. But when you respond to evil with good, uh, slander with a defense in gentleness and respect, now all of a sudden evil is being subverted at the same time that the gospel is being presented And the mission through you, profoundly so, advances. God gives us subversive weapons for this battle. Why does he give us subversive weapons? Because in a very true sense, he has already won the war. He's already won the battle. That the Christian narrative, the Christian story, is not one that we are anxiously fighting, wondering if the battle will be won. It has been won. It has been declared and completed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're battling from victory, not for it. Look how Christ has accomplished this. Look at this, at this next verse, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the Spirit. In just this one verse, a brief summary of the biblical gospel. That Christ suffered and died to reconcile with me, so now I therefore turn and reconcile with others. See how this victory is rolled out and declared, verse 19 and following, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, There's, there's a couple commentators as I was studying for this passage that literally with these two verses, or these couple verses right here in Peter, have called these some of the most, if not the most, confusing verses in the entire New Testament to understand. <laughs> so I can say with confidence that um, Jesus at some point went somewhere to say something to someone. <laughs> I think... I think uh, one of the ways 
uh, that helps us to make sense of these verses. I think the way I take these verses is that in an ultimate sense, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the post-risen Savior, in some way, in some place, declared ultimate victory over all the spiritual realities of forces of, of darkness, Satan, sin, death. That when Jesus died and rose again, Satan and all of his forces realized we can't keep this guy dead. Death, what do you do with a Savior that you can't hold him down with death? He just goes through it and out the other side, raises to new life. And through him, we are delivered. We are saved. We are brought through chaos and back into glory. Ultimate victory is owned and won and declared and secured in Jesus. This is the biblical gospel. And we see that reflected through the ordinance of baptism. Check this out. Verse 21 and following. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt uh, from the body, but as an appeal or pledge to God for, uh, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, triumphant in glory with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, baptism... It's very clear, it doesn't save us as a removal of dirt from the body, that in some ways Peter is speaking to the reality that the ritual doesn't save, the Savior saves. That the ritual itself, going through baptism, is not what we look back on to know that I'm saved because I've gone through an action. We look to the Savior to, to which baptism points, to whom baptism points. That Jesus saves, and now baptism for the believer becomes that, that, that pledge, if you will, that appeal, that statement that says what Christ has accomplished, I have received, I'm declaring that for others, and from here on out, it's a pledge of good conscience that's saying, Lord, I want to follow you. You've shaped me, you've saved me, you've called me, you've delivered me. Your steps are now my steps. Your ways are my ways. Your path is my path. And for the rest of my life, Lord, I want to follow you in this journey that you've called me on. In, in a way, baptism is declaring that publicly. It's declaring that statement, that desire to follow Jesus with your entire heart, with your entire life, until he returns or, or, or brings us home. Now, here's what's so beautiful about baptism being at the start of the journey, as it were or about the death of Jesus Christ happening before the, the, the final end of the story. This is why it's so beautiful. Because you are living this life from his victory. Think about this. If you start the Christian journey, and you start the Christian journey off by saying, I die to self so that I can live to Jesus Christ, that means you are being sent into a battle where you have already died, spiritually speaking, and have been raised to new life in Jesus. That means you're living and operating from that place of the victory that Jesus has already won for you. That he is risen, he's ascended, he's with angels and authorities, all powers having been subjected to him. And that means as a Christian, you are fighting a battle that, in an ultimate sense, cannot be lost. You are fighting a war that has been already decided. You are awaiting a victory. You are awaiting the end of the story that's already been determined. 
And that gives you a unique kind of hope for the battle. It doesn't mean that the battle doesn't exist. It still wages on, does it not? It doesn't mean that there won't be highs and lows on the skirmishes along the way. It doesn't mean there won't even uh, be moments of, of defeat. But do you realize what the gospel means? That even in that defeat, even in those small defeats along the way until Christ returns, grace will pick you back up. He will see you home. Why? Because he's died and risen again. And you are in him, and he is in you. And that means you're battling in a war that's already been decided. So he gives you subversive weapons for the battle because the battle has already been won. The war has already been won. So therefore, until his second coming, live for your new Savior. Live for your new Master. Live for Jesus. Live for the Lord. And live for this new community that Jesus has brought you into. For God and for people. That's the disposition of the Christian journey. That's who we live for. For God and others. Look at chapter 4, starting verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. These verses, verses 1 through 6, are showing, telling us, live free from sin. Because sin has been crucified with Christ. Put to death which is already dead. Die to self. Live to Christ. Because he has absorbed all of our sin. He has absorbed our sin nature in himself on the cross. Therefore, we walk in his newness of life. We put to death what Jesus has already crucified in us. And we're battling from victory, not for it. Think about it this way. Imagine yourself living in the global south as a slave in 1862 before the Emancipation Proclamation, before the 1865 ratification of that freedom in the Constitution. Now imagine you're living in the American south as a slave, and now you live through those two milestones. 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, the 1865 ratification of that freedom. Imagine you wake up the next day after you have been freed from slavery. You're free. You're free. You're free. And you wake up, and the next day in some ways feels no different, and in some ways is completely and utterly different. You are free. But that doesn't mean the old slave master cannot still bark orders. Doesn't mean our old former master does not still uh, seek to intimidate or even harm or hurt. That when you hear the voice of the old master, the fear comes back, the anxiety comes back, the terror comes back, the understanding that, oh my goodness, if I don't obey uh, this, this master, harm is going to come to me. But then you say, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. 
I'm free. I don't need to go back to my former master. I don't need to go back to the one who owned me because I am free. Do you see how the gospel applies to your heart? You are no longer enslaved to sin. The moment after you are saved, the moment after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is applied to your heart by faith, receiving it by his utter and sheer grace in Christ alone, do you realize in that moment you are free? You're free. It doesn't mean that you don't hear the voice of, of your former master of sin, that as sin barks orders, as sin intimidates, and as, even as sin can harm do you realize in that moment you don't have to turn back? You don't have to submit to your former master. You've been bought, chosen, freed, redeemed by a true king, one who has come for you. And now you, we no longer need to live for sin. Sin in all that it promises. It promises deliverance out of difficulty. It promises rest and respite. It promises an escape. It promises joy. Sin, in a way, can promise a way to navigate through difficult situations. We reach for slander. We reach for gossip. We reach for, for, uh, for anger and rage. We try to control our way, uh, seeing ourselves as Lord over our own lives. We, we turn to all sorts of, uh, we see this list, sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Scripture is reading the human heart, and it's saying all of these things you don't have to turn back to because you're free. That you've been freed from the very penalty of sin. Ultimately, you'll be freed from the presence of sin. And though it lingers now, between now and Christ's second coming, do you see that the entire Christian life is one of reminding yourself of the gospel? I'm dead to sin and alive to Jesus. I don't have to choose this. I don't have to go back to this because I've been bought and chosen and saved by the only master who turns to us and says, I die for you, not you die for me. I will undergo suffering and pain. I will absorb your sin and suffering on myself so that you might ultimately be free. The only Lord, the only Savior who provides true joy, true fulfillment, truly sovereign, truly cares for us. There is no better one to turn to that when you see Jesus and all of his saving power clearly in comparison to the promises that sin can make for us, you put those side to side and you realize that Jesus is the better choice always, always. And even when we stumble, even when we fall, even when we revert back, Jesus is still there to forgive, to reconcile, to pick us up, to restore us, to brush us off, to carry us along the way. His grace just gets deeper and truer. And at the same time, his grace motivates, it yearns us to live for him. Live for Christ and live for others. Not only does the gospel say that we are saved from something, and it does, death, hell. We are saved uh, uh, from ultimately the consequences of sin. But we're also saved into something, into a family, into a new community. Check this out, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, 1 Peter 4, 7 says. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, 
use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're free from sin. You're living for Jesus, and you're living for this new community that God has brought you into. That as literally as you glance to your left and to your right, as you come and exit this place every single Sunday, as you go to the ministries that you're pouring into and being poured into, as you're leaning into your small group, as you're mentoring students, as you're teaching children, as you're partnering together in this work, do you realize that you're partnering together with family? You are united together with Jesus Christ and therefore united together with one another. It's one of the implications of communion that we take. It's pointing to and reflected to one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one bread, one cup, together united in him. That as you use your gifts, as you teach, as you lead, as you show hospitality, as you're generous, as you're compassionate with one another, as you serve one another, as you greet people, as you come into this facility, as you prepare lessons, as you help out with our children or students or in any way with our ministry to adults, do you realize that you're linking arms with your new family, your new community? You're not fighting against each other. You're fighting with each other, shoulder to shoulder, living out this mission together along this journey until Christ returns. So I would encourage you, lean in, village. Lean in. And there's been many of you who have been leaning into family and ministry here for years and decades. Praise God for that. Keep it up. There might be some here today that have just been checking out a Village. Maybe you're getting to know us as a church committee. I would encourage you, start to consider and to pray, Lord, how might you be calling me to put an oar in the water for the sake of the gospel? How might you be calling me to link arms to further the mission that God is seeking to advance uh, through village into this world that he has called us to live for. Join us. Partner with us. Lean into one another because you have been freed, freed from sin to live for Jesus, to live for this new community as we go out on mission, as we seek to live out the gospel both in word and in deed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8, all the way through 4.11 says, Christ's victory frees you. His victory, not your effort. His triumph, not your striving. Christ's victory frees you for God and for people. That when Jesus grabs a hold of your heart and your life, he gives you a new why, a new purpose. He is now ultimately your purpose. That if you try to live for self, it's like squeezing on to Play-Doh, squeezing on to mashed potatoes. The tighter you squeeze, if you're trying to live for self, the, the more it squirts out the side. But when you live for God, when he is the center of your heart, when he is the ultimate aim and purpose of your life, though it feels like I'm giving up my life to follow Jesus, but do you realize you are gaining true life and life eternal? He's your new why. Jesus is your new how. The how we live this life, is shaped completely and utterly by Jesus, is as his character is reflected in our character so people see through us imperfectly, imperfectly, very much so, 
but they see through us to the perfect Savior who has saved and is sanctifying us until he returns again. He's your why. He's your how. And he has formed a new who, a new community, a new family. So from his victory, I urge you, I encourage you, live for him and live for each other. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to never get over the gospel, to never get over the ways that you have drawn us in, saved and sanctified us. Lord, would you tune our hearts, would you re-steer the ship that is our life to follow after you, to chase after you, drawn in by your love, carried along by your guiding hand, that we would see that you and you alone are a true hope. Help us, Lord, on this journey, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.